This young woman's name is uh, Zandil Powell. She was born in South Africa to parents of the Zulu tribe. She was orphaned. She was raised in foster homes. At some point, she made her way to England and she studied at Cambridge. That's her story. She's an author, she's a speaker, and now she's this thing that only entered into our vocabulary in the last 10 years. She's a YouTuber. She has quite a following. Recently, she was on a podcast with these two blokes. One is named Robert Francis. The other one is named Constantine Kisson. Uh, their claim to fame is that they were both stand-up comics. And now, they're cultural pundits, and now they run a podcast called Trigonometry. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. They got into a conversation of late that I heard an excerpt from that I thought I would share with you and which really sets us up, not for just what happened with Wren, but for all of us in this room when it comes to thinking about glory. The argument of the day is that religion is in decline. The argument that they're about to share in a very freewheeling and casual way is that that religious impulse is alive and well. It's just taken on different forms. But what happens when it does? Listen to Zandil and these two comics turn cultural pundits kind of have a conversation about that. The reason why so many women now are having plastic surgery and they're having Botox in their early 20s and lip fillers and all the rest of it? Yes, I definitely say that's the reason. I definitely think that it's, um, it's trendy. I think trends now have sort of become mini religions of their own. I think it's something to like follow for a time and then the next thing comes. So it's uh, getting a BBL or a lip filler um, nose job they sort of come in waves, and I think it's nice to feel a part of something, and so a lot of women do these things, but also, uh, obviously, to try and look better than the next person on social media, to improve upon yourself, to sort of work on yourself. Uh, we sort of, I think, have become very desensitized from our human condition physically mm -hmm. um, and anatomically, and we sort of just see ourselves as sort of things to enhance. Um, and that that's somehow going to make us feel better uh, emotionally and psychologically, which most of the time it doesn't. It's so interesting that you say that, you know, that we're, we're looking for happiness, all of us, but what you're really saying is we're just looking for it in the complete wrong place. And that's, a, that's really sad because it just means that people are miserable. Yes, yes, but the alternative is being brave and accepting your fate as a human being and accepting how tragic the human condition is. And that's very scary when I would say there isn't the hope for salvation on the other side. It's sort of, you've only got this life now and you want to make the best of it. And so it's like, live fast, die young, like who cares? Mm -hmm. It's very much, you know, I'm gonna be the best version of myself. May her tribe increase. There's hope for our world if someone like Zandil Powell can speak with that clarity and insight and wisdom as to the nature of our true condition. We're all seeking happiness. We all do, and it's okay. It's natural, it's unavoidable, it's understandable. And yet, as you heard, all the ways in which we tend to seek it are pretty miserable in the end, 
But that search for happiness is just another religious impulse. These new religious impulses now are just like the old ones. We're all out to find something that we don't have, that we think we need. We're all seeking what I would like to argue is an old word called glory. We started with Rocky being afraid that he was going to be a bum. Last week, we heard from Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, who's always looking back about all the opportunities that he missed and looking forward to what he might be able to recover and what he didn't have in his childhood. That, friends, is the search for glory, and we all want it. And like I said last night, last week, when you're younger, you think, it's just ahead. I'll find it soon. It's within my reach. And when you're older, you know better. But you tend to think that your best days are behind you. And Advent is here to explode both myths. The glory that you most seek, the glory that you most want, is actually beyond your reach. And the glory, the glory days that you might have are not behind you. They're still ahead if Advent is true. We want to consider again, what does it mean to have glory? And we're going to listen to a passage, a famous passage from Romans chapter 3 that you might say is the most concentrated distillation about what the gospel is. And you will hear the word glory spoken of only once. And you will hear words related to ideas of sin rather prominently. But I would like to suggest to all of us in this room as you hear that passage, you and I do not have a sin problem. You and I have a glory problem. And until we understand that glory problem, you will either, you will either never understand sin or never understand the solution. We're going to listen to those six or seven verses and we're going to consider glory under three heads. Glory defined, glory defaced, and then glory restored. Glory defined, glory defaced, glory restored. We're in Romans chapter 3. I wonder if you might stand. We'll start in verse 19. Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You may have a seat. Uh, it goes pretty fast, but the word glory, you only heard one time, which would suggest to us, if you were just hearing Romans for the very first time, that Paul means something by his use of that word, but because he doesn't elaborate upon it, we probably should ask ourselves the question, what does he mean? What is glory about? If I have said that we have a problem that's not primarily sin, but by primarily glory, then we better define what we mean by glory. The original word from which we get the glory from the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kavod. And it literally means weight, that which is heavy, that which is full of matter, weighty, heavy, substantial, full of matter. If, 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 a, if there is a, an object in space that has a certain gravitational pull, that gravitational pull correlates to the mass of that body. The larger the mass, the greater the gravitational pull. The larger the mass, the greater the glory of it, so to speak, to put it in those terms. The literal meaning of glory is weightiness and substantialness. Figuratively, it means that which has significance. That which matters. So it's matter, literally, but when we say you have glory, it means you matter. There is something to you. There's a center. There's, a, there's an intentionality bit. There's a stability there. Glory is, first of all, understood from what Paul says about the Lord in Romans chapter 1. The, immort, the glory of the immortal God, he speaks of, who the Lord is. It is a quality that is ascribed to God because of his very being. He didn't earn that title. He didn't merit it. It's just him. He is immortal. He is eternal. None of you in this room know anything, have ever touched anything that is eternal. Everything that you know, it might be old, but it's not eternal. It had a birth date of some sort. Even though you might have been in you know, close proximity to something that is far outstrips you and far will, will both came a long time before you and will last a long time after you. That thing is still not eternal. If God is eternal, who had no birth date and has no expiration date, then automatically, yeah, I think that qualifies as something with glory. It has a, he has a significance that you and I do not possess simply by virtue of the fact, among others, that he is eternal. Glory is a quality we ascribe to God for his very being. But twice in Romans chapter 2, the only other two times that Paul uses that word glory before we get to it in chapter 3, he speaks of glory as something associated with humanity. He speaks about glory and honor and immortality and peace as that which a human might seek after. Those four things are related they're not identical. I'm not even sure you'd call them synonymous, but they all live in the same ballpark. One might seek glory and honor and immortality and peace. It is something to which we aspire, and therefore it is related to something that, we, that has a function of how we, the kind of life that we lead, a life of glory. 
But at the same time, you hear Paul speak of glory as a quality of God and glory as something to which a human might aspire. If you back up a little bit into the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 8, we discover a slightly different but profound nuance in understanding glory when it comes to humans. Psalm 8 reads like this. What is man, O Lord, that you're mindful of him and a son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Apparently, our humanity has glory, not necessarily or not even primarily by the life that we lead, but because we are made in his image. That we have been bestowed glory as a function of having been created by him. It is a quality that is innate in us, that is inherent to us, not for anything that we've done, but simply because we are made in his image and because we've been commissioned to his purposes. You and I, we have glory. Glory is a quality of God. Glory is something to which we aspire, but glory is something that we all innately possess simply because we are made in his image. Now that's all wonderful. And those are all great ideas. And, and there may be part of you that feels a certain flourish inside. I have glory. I, this is not a word, though, that you can simply understand its definition. You have to feel it. And, and I want to show you a scene, ironically, about um, uh, he who was not human. And yet it took humans to recognize what glory was when they saw it. Uh, horse racing's been around for a long time. In America, they've been doing official horse racing for a very long time, over 100 years. And in that span, there have been somewhere between 13 and I think 15 horses who have won what you know as the Triple Crown. The Kentucky Derby, the Belmont Stakes, and the Preakness. And 15 times, one horse has won all three races the same year, and that's called the Triple Crown. But there is one horse who has won the Triple Crown, but also who still holds the record, the time record for all of those races. Others have come along to win the Triple Crown since him, but he alone holds the record, and that horse was named Secretariat. And in 1973, at the Belmont Stakes, he ran the fastest Belmont Stakes anyone has ever raced. I want to show you that moment recreated in that film, but I want you to feel it too. shy away from the sword he cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds Eagle, Eagle! 
Maybe you can't define it, but you know when you see it. Uh, your mouth hangs open, your eyes don't blink, you're in the presence of something you've never seen before, and you say, that's impossible. You are full of awe. You are full of astonishment. And it is a wonder. And you lift your hands, and you might weep, and you don't want to miss it. Friends, that's glory. And if ever you lose sight of it, you lose something, sight of something profound and at the center of all things. Glory matters. Glory is something we can never comprehend fully, but when you are in the presence of it, you dare not miss it, and you are changed. And that's why they play gospel music, because what, other are you gonna, what else are you going to play in a moment like that? You want to do this, and you don't care. C.S. Lewis said this in a, in, a, in a sermon that is in your resource talk this week that it, this will not be the last time you hear of it spoken of. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is the immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's in whose presence you are today. You might have been really nasty to somebody on the ride in today. Let me just remind you, they possess a glory in spite of their behavior. That is why, if you've been listening carefully the last two weeks, when it comes to membership vows that we did with those who joined last week and with the baptismal vows that Ren just took, our session adopted a new first membership vow that we actually borrowed from a sister church in our denomination. Why? Because to understand these membership vows and to understand anything in particular, especially our need of Jesus, you better first understand our glory. And so that first vow, in case you weren't listening, is this. Do you believe in the one true God as revealed in the Bible who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and who has created you in his image with inherent dignity, purpose, and worth? You have to start there about who he is and about who you are in relation. And that dignity, purpose, and worth are all just an elaboration of what it means to say we possess glory. You gotta get that. You gotta get that because about what we're talking about next. We've defined glory, but now we're gonna talk about what's happened to our glory. And that's my second point. You hear in Paul's language they're talking about sin. And in that sense, he says, sin is an issue that we must all come to reckon with, that God has come to reckon with us about it. And yet, in light of glory, in light of the glory in which we were made, sin is more than merely an error. The sins we commit are more than just we violated a law, we transgressed against a code of conduct. If it is true that we possess glory by virtue of our being created in his image, then any transgression is far more than just an oops or some sort of corruption. It speaks to something more profound. It speaks to something that we all have to see in context, which is why we've got this new first vow when it comes to membership. The one time you hear the word glory spoken of in Romans chapter 3, at least in our passage, is when Paul says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fall short. What, that, what does that mean? 
you say something fell short, you almost like say, like, like the other horse that almost beat Secretariat. Oh, he just fell short. Oh, it was so close. No, that's, that's not what fall short means. To fall short is something to be hollowed out. That which was full has now been vacated and empty. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, Lord Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Uh, do I lack anything? Am I empty of anything? Same idea. When in the parable of the two sons, the younger son says, I want my inheritance. I want it now. And the father says, here you go. I won't stop you. You can go. I love you. I can't keep you here. But, and then that's it. And the younger son goes, and the younger son spends it all, and the younger son is so convinced of his wisdom, of his right to what he believes is his, and after a while, he discovers just how foolish he is, and it says, and he began to feel his need. That's the same verb of falling short. To fall short of the glory of God is to have something emptied, to discover that something has been wrong, and that there's a corruption that inhabits you that you cannot wash off or fill up yourself. And if I might keep in the kind of metaphorical realm that I talked about here when we say glory is kind of like having the image of God in you, then my argument to you, not only is glory defined, that our glory has been defaced. The image that we possess has now been besmirched. It has been defaced. And now we are almost unrecognizable. Uh, here's a shot from a couple, about a year ago at the, at the Louvre when uh, the Mona Lisa, somebody takes cake and defaces the image. Now, fortunately, Mona had glass in front of her. So da Vinci's famous work was ultimately unhurt, untouched, unbesmirched. But in that moment, it was defaced. You couldn't see it and, it, and it defiled that which was of glory and beauty. Friends, there's your picture of what's happened to us. The glory that you possess, the dignity, purpose, and worth has been defaced. It's more than you just broke a law or you had some moments in which it was a weakness of character and it's a foible, wrong. When it comes to sin, you and I need to understand that in falling short, it's more than just an infraction. It's that we've sacrificed something of our own identity that we've been given. We have broken ourselves into pieces when we sin, not simply defied an order or a command given to us. That's what Paul means by falling short. And why, why do we do that? Why do we do not just what breaks a law, Paul has spoken of that, why do we do things that are really smearing more than paint upon the image of God in us? What, what are we so interested in? I'll tell you, it's because we want it. It is our, it is our instinctual inheritance. First pair, Adam and Eve, they had everything they needed. And then they were given an offer. You know what? You can be your own God, and you really don't have to answer to him. You can take what you think you need, what will be good enough, and you will not have to be under the thumb of that authority figure. It's all yours. Just enjoy. 
And that, friends, is at the core of our being. C.S. Lewis said this also. Just I don't have a slide for it. Just listen. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial. But, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, though, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Why do we deface the image of God in us? Because our desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. We will settle for something that is not enough. We will convince ourselves, that's good. And then we will get it and wonder, why did I want it? We will try to find, in the language of the passage, our own righteousness, our acceptance, our okayness. We will prove to ourselves or to somebody else, I am good. I have glory. And that will lead us to pursue all manner of things that we will find in the end do not fill. But we will also run the risk of going astray in such a way that we will do harm along the way. I'm going to show you a clip I've shown you before from the movie Munich. And I, I only want you to take from the clip what I'm going to say. It's a little on the nose for where we are this moment about Israel. I don't intend it to go there, but I will say this. The story, based upon what happened in Munich in 1972 when the Israeli wrestling team was massacred, and Golda Meir, the then prime minister of Israel, authorized members up in the government to go to assassinate those whom they thought were responsible for the massacre of the Israeli wrestling team. And at some point along the way, those who were commissioned unto that purpose begin to wonder, what are we doing? Listen. So you really want to kill him? All his blood comes back to us. Eventually it will work. Even if it takes years, we'll beat them. We're Jews, Evner. Jews don't do wrong because our enemies do wrong. We can't afford to be that decent anymore. I don't know that we ever were that decent. Suffering thousands of years of hatred doesn't make you decent. But we're supposed to be righteous. That's a beautiful thing. That's Jewish. That's what I knew. That's what I was taught. And now I'm losing it. I'm I lose that. That's that's, that's 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 everything. That's my soul. They know it's righteous. And now in the face of injustice, they've decided to become like the very people that they're trying to avoid becoming. And and you know you've crossed the line when that which you most despise and your attempt to turn it back, you start to become that which you despise. That's, that's what that moment captures. And in the quest for whatever they seek, they are jettisoning this thing called righteousness. That's just another example, significant as it is and severe, of the glory that we possess being defaced, expressed in our choices to find 
whatever we want more than what he does. That is the nature of what is before us, and it is everybody's problem. You may never have ever been part of an assassination squad, but I will tell you that yours and my desires and that which we seek has led us astray on more times than we would ever like to admit. It is everybody's problem. What we seek, whether it's legacy or status or relationship or importance, every single one of those is an opportunity to fall into a ditch. And it's everyone's problem. Matthew Perry, he died last month. Famous with all manner of fame. And then when Friends was over, his life changed. And someone named Heather Haverleski wrote an homage about him a couple weeks ago and made it pretty clear that what is true of him is true of us, even if we don't have the same story as he. Every life is an impossible tangle of mistakes, flailing confusedly, craving more love, more safety, less loneliness. is isn't just human, it's the signature move of every human alive, including every one of us in this room, myself included. The glory's been defaced. And lest we look on Matthew Perry or the assassins in 1972 or somebody else as if we kind of live above them, there's a wonderful comment by a bishop named Handley Mole from about a century and a half ago who, who put it this way. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and on the crest of an alp, but you are as little to touch the stars as they. Nice middle-class people. Friends, we're all in the same boat. We've sought to find our glory more often than not. Just like, just like Rocky and just like Uncle Rico, having no thought and no care about the glory that we've already been given. Now, if that ain't a bleak midwinter line, I don't know what is. But good news. God has given us something as a gift. We've talked about the definition of glory. We've talked about the defacement of glory. Now let's talk about the restoration of God's, the restoration of glory in us by the Lord himself. The heart of this passage is one simple idea, one very profound idea, that glory has been restored to us by Jesus. The glory that we possess by virtue of our creation, which has been defaced as an expression of our own corruption, inherited instinct, that's been restored by the work of Jesus in us. It's been restored by the acquitting of our sin. What Wren demonstrated this morning by virtue of baptism is to suggest to us all that if your faith is in him, you have been acquitted of sin. Your guilt is no longer your own. It has been set aside. And now you are counted righteous in his sight by what Jesus has done on your behalf. And all of that is by his life, his death, his resurrection, which satisfies the justice of God, but at the same time it extends to you his favor. And all of that is a gift. You didn't impress him. You didn't contribute to it. He didn't just sort of say, well, you're in. 
you're close on the bell curve, close enough. The cutoff was here. You came just over the edge, you're in. It's not how it works. This righteousness, this restoration has come to you as a gift. And it had nothing to do with your faithfulness. It has everything to do with your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. That's the gospel. And that is the gospel of glory. He whom God justified, he also will in time glorify. And he's already begun to restore to you that glory now. In Jesus, we have God's justice. God didn't set that aside. He didn't just sort of say, I don't think I really care about sin anymore. But at the same time, he showed his mercy. And that is how the glory gets restored. And when you begin to believe that, your desires for all the other things that seem so profound, that seem so essential, they start to be put in a different category and lower on the list and don't have quite the same priority they once did. How do you apply the passage? I mean, Paul doesn't tell you or us to do anything in it. In fact, he won't start talking about imperatives. Remember that little grammatical lesson we had several weeks ago about in the, in the grammar of the Bible, there are two verbal moods. There's the indicative mood and the imperative mood. The indicative mood is, let me tell you what the Lord has done. And then the imperative mood. So here's what you do. You ever leave out the indicative mood, you got no strength, basis, or current confidence that you'll ever be able to fulfill the imperative mood. But if you think your God is only interested in you understanding that which he has done, you're wrong. There is a response he intends, but only on the basis of his grace. In Romans 3, he has said nothing to you about what to do, but I believe there's an implication here. And I get that from a little help from John Calvin. Oh, him. When John Calvin reads this passage, he is immediately taken to what happens in John chapter 12. When Jesus has begun to make headway with those who are of the rabbinical class, you know, it starts with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and then others in the Sanhedrin start to go, hmm, what's this guy about? Maybe God is with him. And they begin to believe. And then in John chapter 12, you hear this. Right before that. Right before that. There you go. Many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It is to love the glory of somebody else more than the glory of God. Rocky just wanted to have the glory of a crowd and the glory of his wife and the glory of his friends. So did Uncle Rico and so do you. That's why Paul says, or rather Calvin says, you and I are a forge of idols. And what this text calls us to in Romans chapter 3, he says this. Paul is summoning us from the applause of the human court to the tribunal of heaven. How do you apply this? You got to realize that the one thing to you that you and I are most susceptible to all the days of our life, even after we're baptized... And that's why we've got to remember our baptism every time somebody like Wren is baptized is this. You and I are given to idolatry. To think of someone or something 
or some status as larger than who the Lord is. That's our deal. That's our flaw. And it's everybody's flaw. We have to watch for them. We have to repent of them. I'm not asking you to think that there's an idol under every rock. But I'm here to warn us all. Look, if you like to lie, then you have made an idol of the ability to control certain ideas and the truth. And you know what? It'll pay off in the short run. No doubt. That's why we do it. It works. And then later it costs you. And you wonder why. We have to repent. We have to watch for idols. We have to repent of idols. And how do you do that? Let me end this way. Anybody ever see City Slickers? 1989, right? Um, Three guys reaching midlife, realizing the wheels have fallen off. And Mitch, played by Billy Crystal. Oh my gosh. See? Past midlife, right there. <clears throat> he hears about being able to go to a dude ranch, even though it starts to conflict with another family opportunity to go out with his, with her, his wife's parents for two weeks. And she looks at him and how bleak he is, and she says, Honey, please don't go with us on vacation. Go to the dude ranch. Just please don't go. But she ends up her whole little spiel with him to say this, go find your smile. Something has gotten lost constitutionally in you, Mitch, that you need to recover, that you might come back and live again. Some of you are trying to find your smile in the wrong things, and you wonder why it remains a frown. But I think what this passage is enjoining us all to is this, not go find your smile. Go find, as often as you need to, go find your boast. Go find the thing, that one thing that does not change, namely, that your glory is in him, that you belong to him, that you are beloved in him. And as often as you start to find yourself giving your way to idols, stop Drop and roll and remember where your glory comes from. Go find your boast. Our boast is in him. And that's why we had Jeremiah read this. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me and my steadfast love. When you forget that, you will go try to find steadfast love in something else. Go find your boast. Repent of your idols. That's where glory is. That's how glory finds you again. Let's pray. Father, whatever we bring into this room today that we think we love too much, maybe now that we've heard this, something that's probably worthy of love and respect and attention and all those things, we, we know that we have desires and those desires are of you and they ought to be given with thanksgiving, but we also know that they can become so large loom so profoundly in our hearts that we perhaps even begin to think that we don't even need you. Father, help us to see where those are, to fear them, to see the folly in them, and to find our boast again in you. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen.